Post tenebris lux. This Latin phrase is referred to as the motto of the Protestant Reformation. And of course, you know that this phrase means after darkness, what? Light. After darkness, light. It is a phrase that is used to describe the Word of God essentially during the Reformation coming out of hiding and coming to the common man. For hundreds of years, the Roman Catholic Church had kept the Bible out of the hands of the laity. In some instances, and in some places, the Bible was actually banned so that the common person could not read it for himself. He needed the priest to mediate God's word to him. And of course, we believe that getting God's word into the hands of the people is the good and the right thing to do. After all, Scripture does uh, remind us in Proverbs 3 and verse 27, do not withhold good from those to whom it is due. And one of those good things in this list of good things is uh, the word of God, and that is something that we ought not withhold from people. Throughout history, people have not had access to the word of God for various reasons. Sometimes people cannot access the Word of God because it is unavailable to them in their language, or they are living in a place where no Bible is accessible. This is the first reason why some people don't have access to God's Word. In other situations, bad men purposefully take God's Word away from the people. We see this, as we've already referenced, the example of the Roman Catholic Church prior to the Reformation. We've seen also dictatorships or totalitarian regimes do this. And this is, of course, the second reason why people will not have access to God's word, because bad people will take it away from them. The Voice of the Martyrs website, by the way, lists 52 countries right now in our world where access to the Bible ranges from difficult to illegal. Evil regimes don't want people to have access to God's word. There's a third reason I'll give today why people do not have access to God's word, and we will call this, I'm going to call this a self-induced famine. We are, I think, living in this environment today. Any citizen of the United States of America can, at any time they want to, get a Bible in their hands for free. Churches and parachurch organizations and individual Christians across this country will give Bibles to people no questions asked. You can go online and you could put your address in there uh, at, at, at different organizations and they will ship you, they will mail you a Bible at no cost to you. We have here in America what one person has described as an embarrassment of riches. We have riches beyond riches in America. And yet for all of this benefit and all of this truth and all of this accessibility to Scripture, we find that people don't want it. We have a self-induced famine. We have, in a sense, people who have judged themselves unworthy and decided to abandon Scripture, abandon truth, and abandon hope. We're certainly reminded of Proverbs 16 and verse 25 that says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it is the way to death. 
This is, as we're talking about today, a way that seems right. It is a way without Scripture. It is a way without the truth of God's Word. Now, in all three examples that I've given you so far, there is a famine of God's Word. There is uh, a need for Scripture, but people don't have access to it. Maybe they don't have access to it in their own language. Maybe they don't have access to it because people prevent them from having it. Or maybe they don't have access to it because they don't want to have access to it. But there is a fourth reason why people experience a famine of God's word. And this fourth reason is the one that is given to us in the passage in front of us in Amos 8. This one, I will suggest to us, is the most difficult and the most challenging one of all to understand. And it is simply this. There can be a famine of God's word when the famine is sent by God himself. All we have to do is simply look a little bit ahead at verse 11 in our chapter today where we read this behold the days are coming declares the lord god when i will send a famine on the land not a famine of bread nor a thirst of water but of hearing the words of the lord god himself says that he is taking credit for this specific famine of the word of god There are other places in Scripture where we see this theme. I'm going to bring just one more to the table for the time being. And I want to read to you from 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 9 through 12, a passage that is describing the end times. And we see this. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them what? God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. It may be that this kind of judgment, that is the judgment we see in Amos 8 where God sends a famine, The judgment we see in 2 Thessalonians 2 where God sends a delusion so that people believe what is false. It may be that this kind of judgment is the most severe of all. In fact, Jonathan Edwards preached a sermon on Amos 8.11 and the title of this sermon was this. Spiritual judgments are the most terrible for a people. And that certainly is the case. Let's read Amos chapter 8, beginning in verse 9 and going through the end of the chapter. And on that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feast into mourning and your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head, and I will make it like mourning for an only son and the end of it like a bitter day. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst of water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. 
In that day, the lovely virgins and the young men shall faint for thirst. Those who swear by the guilt of Samaria and say, as your God lives, O Dan, and as the way of Beersheba lives, they shall fail or fall and never rise again. We're going to look at this in three sections. Uh, There is a judgment of reversals in the first two verses. There's a judgment of famine that is sent in verses 11 through 12. Of course, the famine we've already referred to, that is the famine of hearing the word of God. And then finally, in 13 through 14, a judgment of destruction. Verses 9 through 10, the beginning part of our passage here today, is what one writer calls an ironic litany of reversals. You have a series of nouns, and these nouns are reversed so that they become their opposites. Day becomes night, song becomes lamentation, and feast becomes mourning. All of this, of course, flows from what has been happening all throughout Amos. And if you have been with us through our study on Amos, you know that God is continually pronouncing his judgments on these people, passage after passage, week after week. In verse 9, you have this simple statement, On that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. There is some discussion specifically about whether this is more figurative or uh, is a metaphor for something else. But I would like to point our and draw our attention to the fact that on June 15th, 763 BC, one year after this prophecy was given, a solar eclipse was visible from Israel. And I think... Verse 9 is referring to the immediate judgment where Israel would have been taken into captivity by Assyria. And thus this verse is fulfilled just one year later in preparation of this judgment being fulfilled, being brought into uh, Assyria. And for those who may respond to this and say, well, science can explain solar eclipses today. Note that God's providence is not at odds with science. Certainly, science can explain solar eclipses to an extent, but that doesn't mean that God can't use it for his purposes as well. Why can't God say, I'm going to darken the earth in broad daylight and then use a solar eclipse to fulfill that? Is that somehow at odds with the working of God? It is not. And besides, science is even... uh, uh, incapable of completely explaining these things because it cannot explain what some have referred to as the uniformity of nature. Why is it that these things can be expected to work themselves out in a normal, regular, predictable pattern? Why is it that the laws of science are grounded firmly in a strong foundation of regularity? Well, it's simply because that the laws of science and the laws of nature are simply descriptions of the way that God works his providence in the world. It simply is a description of the way that he upholds the, the world. And so certainly the Lord can use these kinds of things to do what he wills with them. In any event, we can see from this passage that God is simply disrupting the usual pattern of life for Israel as a sign of judgment. In verse 9, it is due to the darkness that happens during the day. And then in verse 10, it is due to several more factors. We see in verse 10 where God says, I will turn your feasts into mourning. 
your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it like the morning for an only son and the end of it like a bitter day. This, of course, is God's divine disruption in the world. God is undoing all of these good things in order to judge them for their sin. You don't want God turning your feasts into mourning. You don't want God turning your songs into lamentation. You don't want God to bring sackcloth on you. You don't want God to make your sadness, as verse 10 says, the same kind of sadness that happens when your only child dies. So what should we do? We should look at the context of the book of Amos and go back to Amos 5 in verse 6 where we read what? Remember what Amos 5, 6 said? Seek me and live. And that, of course, is the constant refrain throughout this book. The book of Amos is a book filled with hope. You say the book of Amos does not sound like a book filled with hope because every single week you get into the pulpit, John, you tell us more judgment and more judgment and more condemnation and more. Seek me and live. That is part and parcel of this message. Israel, of course, would not do this. Israel would not seek him and live. And so one of the reasons why Amos is profitable is because it teaches us what happens to people who don't seek the Lord and live. One of the reasons that you need to see the harshness and the severity of God's hand against those who will not repent is because you need a warning to not go there. I need a warning to not go there. Israel would not do this, and so because of this, the Lord brings a famine on the land. We see this in verses 11 through 12. It is a judgment of famine. I would suggest to us that verses 11 through 12, that this is the hottest part of Amos. This is the harshest judgment that we see. Let God judge a nation by sending plagues, but what kind of judgment must it be for the Lord to to do, as Jonathan Edwards says, remove his candlestick from a nation? Why would I suggest to us that this is the most severe? Because of this. When God sends a mist on the nation... When God sends darkness on a nation, when God sends great confusion on a nation so that they no longer hear or understand the words of the Lord, that seals their fate. If God sends plagues on a nation, but his word is accessible, you can still at least repent and be saved. But when the Lord sends a famine of his word on a land, this is the the harshest judgment of all. 
because you don't know where to go now to find hope. Woe to the nation that is lost and does not know the way back. Woe to the nation who does not know the name of the Lord. Woe to the nation who has trampled upon God's word. Woe to the nation who no longer knows how to seek the Lord. Isaiah is commanded to preach to such a people. You may recall this from probably one of, if not the most well-known, passages from Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6, where he says, you know, who's going to go for us? And we read, beginning in verse 8, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, that is Isaiah, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts And turn and be healed. Is this not one of the most weighty portions of scripture? Where the Lord himself is saying, make the heart of this people dull so that they won't see and hear and be healed. This is why we see several chapters later in Isaiah 55, 6, a plea that simply says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. What can Isaiah 55, 6 mean other than the fact that there is a time when God may not be found, a time where he is not near, a time when his word is not accessible? If you are running away from the Lord... Do not presume upon his patience and his long-suffering. You are not guaranteed tomorrow. God may take your life from you today. This can happen to any of us in this room today. Any of us can get in our car and get T-boned on the way home and it's over with. God may take your life, or God may do what he says here, and that is take his word from your life. And I think that is one of the harshest judgments possible. Now, this brings to our attention something that is something that makes us perhaps a little bit uneasy. Let's talk about this whole business of God sending the famine. Note again, verse 11. Let's read this again. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will send a famine on the land, not of bread or water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. And then I want you to see what this famine produces in verse 12. This produces people who are wandering aimlessly with no direction. And so in verse 12, we read, they shall wander from sea to sea, north to east, to and fro, seeking the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. God will finally say, enough is enough. I'm removing my word from your midst. And then in that day, you're going to want to find it, but you won't be able to. Now, the obvious difficulty that we have here in this particular passage is simply the first person, personal pronoun in verse 11. I. 
I will send. Does anyone else see that as like something that makes you slightly uncomfortable? Slightly uneasy? It may sound strange to our ears that God is trying, that he is the one who is, who is obscuring his own word. Doesn't he want to clarify his word for us? Doesn't he want to make his word something that is accessible to us and understandable to us? To give us every opportunity? I would suggest to us that all, and there's, by the way, actually a good handful of passages in Scripture that emphasize this theme of God taking his light away from people, his candlestick away. I would suggest to us that all of these instances in Scripture where God purposefully hides his word or obscures his word or creates a famine of his word are the instances where God gives to these people what they want. It is as if God were saying, in essence, okay, you hate my word, you don't want my word, you reject my word, you refuse to repent and to seek me, fine, I'll take it away from you. I'll remove my light entirely from you and give you what you want. Earlier we read in or we read in 2 Thessalonians and that is exactly what was happening in that passage. You remember what we read? We read that in that passage it says they refused to love the what? The truth. They refused to love the truth Therefore, what? God sends them a strong delusion so they may believe what is false. In other words, these people had every opportunity given to them. They had the word given to them clearly, and they refused it. And God said, okay, fine, I'll give you what you want. And of course, the same here is true in Amos. God sends his prophets and his word and his truth, and only after they have continually rejected it again and again and again does he finally give them their wishes. We might employ that old adage, be careful what you wish for. You might just get it. And this seems to be the Lord's normal pattern. He is patient, long-suffering, but when people continually and persistently push against him, he eventually steps out of their way and lets them get what they want. It is like God is, is his, his hand. You, you realize, by the way, that this is a, a, a essential component of God's common grace. Some people uh, say, for example, you know, um, I, I just cannot believe that people in this world are that bad. Um, I don't ever think that. I think, I can't believe that people in this world are that good. Like, why is it not a whole lot worse than it actually is right now? Why? Because of common grace. God's staying hand is holding back kind of the floodwaters of the human heart and, and preventing us from fully unleashing total depravity on the world. You don't want to live in that world where God lets that go. 
and, 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 this is, and, and you see this here. You see this uh, in particular in Romans 1, where it's God is kind of releasing. There's this kind of succession of, uh, of dams that have been placed, kind of holding the water back. And, and God says, okay, you want to go that far? I'll release this one. And shh, a flood water comes out. And then he says, okay, you keep pushing against that one? Fine, you, I'll let that one go. And it goes further and further and further and further. God is patient. He is long-suffering. When people continually, though, push and push and push, he finally says, fine, have it your way. You're, of course, familiar with, uh, you know, the fairy tales that exploit this theme, right? You've heard a fairy tale where somebody gets, I don't know, three wishes or whatever it is, right? And they wish for, let's say, uh, eternal life. I wish that I could live forever. And that wish is granted to them, except there's like a little caveat there, right? They get to live forever, but they didn't, they forgot to add to their wish that they wanted to live forever with like a good body. But their body keeps getting older and older and older. And they live forever, but it ends up becoming their worst nightmare. They get what they wanted, but not quite the way that they thought it was going to work out. They may have eternal life in this fairy tale world, but they don't have any quality of life. They got what they wished for, but ironically, their greatest wish ends up being their greatest curse. And that is, I think, exactly what we have here. They get their wish, their greatest wish, God, go away, leave me alone, no accountability, no judgment, none of this stuff. I just want to be able to do whatever I want, whenever I want, as much as I want. God says, okay, you want me out of your life? Fine. The greatest wish becomes the greatest curse. And of course, the phrase that we see, as we mentioned in Romans 1, is specifically the phrase, God gave them up. He specifically and intentionally turns people over to their sinful desires when they persist. And the giving up is actually part of the judgment itself. Giving you what you want in your sinful flesh is a form of judgment. Because it never satisfies like you think that it will. Mankind's greatest wishes today become their greatest regrets tomorrow. I wanted God out of my life, but now I'm groping around in the darkness. I wanted to experience sexual freedom, but now I am dissatisfied and this has become a burden and a weight around my neck. In the Amos passage, what this means is that when people persist in ignoring God's word, God finally gives them what they want. I mean, think about this. We're in chapter 8 of Amos. They haven't listened so far. God has been abundantly pouring out his word on these people, being gracious to them. He's been telling them they have a cancer. And that news from the physician is good news in the sense that you now know what you have to do to take care of it. And he's telling his people, you have a cancer. You have a cancer. Oh, all this judgment, all this judgment. This is a kindness of the Lord. This is a mercy of the Lord. The scary reality is what we find in our present culture right now. We have this where people are rejecting the word of God, and we see this specifically in 2 Timothy 4. Verses 3 through 4, where we read, The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching 
ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Is this not an indictment against 21st century America? 2 Timothy 4, in verse 1, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. What then is to become of us? Perhaps we ought to take Isaiah's advice from Isaiah 55. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Because there is mercy with him. We are not guaranteed tomorrow. And this is precisely what Israel would not listen to this. They would not hear the Lord. And so the Lord brings destruction. In verses 13 through 14. In that day the lovely virgins and the young men shall faint for thirst. Those who swear by the guilt of Samaria and say, As your God lives, O Dan, and as the way of Beersheba lives, they shall fall and never rise again. What's going on here in these two verses is that the Lord is showing us what happens to those who sin without repentance. There will be for Israel a fainting for thirst, and those who swear by false gods, as is happening in these two verses, will never rise again. That is what they will face. Post-tenebrous lux. It is a Latin phrase that means, after darkness, light. And I am afraid that the light of the Reformation has all but gone out in our current culture. There is perhaps just a faintly burning lantern left in our country in the midst of a sea of darkness. And so it may be appropriate for our current day and our current age to reverse that famous Reformation phrase so that instead of saying after darkness light, we may describe our land by saying after light darkness. For it is a dark time. And ironically so. It is a dark time. Ironically, We live in an age where we have instant access to information at our fingertips, and yet we are starving for truth. You can get access to any piece of information that you want in this very moment, and it's yours. And yet we are starving for truth. I think of um, the the dwarves in Lewis's uh, book, The Last Battle, uh, you remember that scene where the, the dwarves at the very end, they are in um, uh, a stable or a shed. And suddenly they are surrounded by beautiful landscapes, by good food, um, and all of these good things. And yet they are blinded so that they think that they are still in a dark shed. They can't see that they're out in the light, in the open, with all of this good food. And so an attempt is made to reason with them. You know, they're told, look, here is some good food, eat this. But they taste it and it tastes disgusting to them. Or they say, oh, there's a beautiful meadow over there. And they look and it's just darkness. What are you talking about? It's dark in here. We don't see anything that you're talking about. 
And the same is true for us. We go to a lost world and we show them God's word and we say, look, here is good truth. Here is something to nourish your soul. And they say, what are you talking about? That's just, that's awful. That's just, that doesn't appeal to me at all. Look, look, the, the Bible gives us a way that we can have hope. Why would I? That's not hope. That seems like a harsh God to me. I wouldn't. This is, if we can borrow a line from the hymn, O Great God, we could describe this simply with the line that says, I had no taste for heaven's joys. And this is the case for every unbeliever. You, prior to your own conversion, had no taste for heaven's joys. It, it was like those dwarves who, who tasted this delicious fruit and said, oh, that's, that's disgusting. That, that tastes like the straw. What do you... We're given good food. Maybe before you were a believer in Christ, you heard a sermon preached, or you heard a hymn, or you heard uh, a passage of Scripture read, or you heard someone praying fervently to the Lord, and you kind of chuckled to yourself and said, that is absolutely insane. No taste for heaven's joys. You have to be given that taste We live in a world where people have no taste for heaven and no taste for the joys that Christ provides us. We have all of the information that we need, but none of the joy because we have no taste for it. In Hosea 4 and verse 6, we read, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Could it be that we, here in the information age, will be destroyed because of lack of knowledge. Paul is certainly right when he says in Romans 1, claiming to be wise, they became fools. If there was any motto for 21st century America, I think this might be it. If there's any way that our age might be known going down in history is claiming to be wise, they became fools fools. And one does not have to, to, the things come to mind. Think of where our culture is. Think of the things that that 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago were normal parts of culture, and now we're questioning the very fabric of what it means to be a person, what it means to be a human, what it means to all of these things. Professing to be wise, they became fools. We have in our nation, claimed wisdom, but revealed our folly. But there is hope. And the hope is this. I want to continue. Every, every page that we read of Amos, I, I want to I grab your head and turn your head and, and, turn, and look at Amos 5. Verse 6, seek the Lord and live. I am afraid that more of Amos 8 applies to us Christians here in this room than we would like. We can sit here all day and talk about them, and we can talk about 
the, the degrading of the culture around us, and we can lament how we're living in an age where people despise the word of God, and yet how many of us practically despise the word of God through neglect of it? How many of us walk past the Bible sitting on our end table and day after day after day after day after day after day after day day, we neglect it? You may know theologically in your head that God's word is precious, but you're showing practically by your life that it's not. There are other things competing for that position in your life. How many of us neglect the word? How many of us are living in a self-induced famine of truth? What's the answer? Amos 5, 6. Seek the Lord and live. Let me encourage you with something. We talk here at Crossview a lot about Christ and running to Christ and knowing Christ and delighting in Christ. We sing a song frequently called, I Run to Christ. Some of us may sing that song or we may hear someone say, run to Christ. And we might say, I hear you, but I'm not sure that I hear you because what in the world does that even mean? Is he physically here? I can run up to him. Let me tell you what it's not. Running to Christ is not some sort of feminist, romantic, emotional experience. Okay? Let me conjure up these feelings of, okay, that's not what running to Christ is. Let me read to you two passages. John 1.14, the word became flesh. That's important. Who is this talking about? Jesus Christ. The word became flesh. Okay, now let's read Revelation 19, 13. He, that is Christ, is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is what? The word of God. The word. The word became flesh. That's Jesus. His title, his name is the word of God. So when we say, run to Christ, let's use his title and his name in that place. Run to the word. Those are synonymous. That's a, we're saying the same thing. Run to Christ, run to the word. Run to the word, run to Christ. Okay? Now, running to it does not mean that you're physically running up to it and standing next to it, okay? It means that you're pouring over it, that you're consuming it, that you're reading it, that you're memorizing it, all of these kinds of things. That is what it means to run to Christ. And the whole thing, not just the pick and choose parts, not just the parts that I like and discard the parts I don't like. It's the whole thing. When you understand that Jesus Christ is the word of God, you understand that to pursue Christ, you have to pursue the word. You have to pursue this. 
in light of this, I have three points of application. I think the primary thrust of the passage today is centering around this idea of a famine of truth. Okay? In light of that, how can we apply this to us? Number one, pursue a rigorous reading of, studying of, memorizing of, and delighting in the Bible. Okay? Number two, disciple others to do the same. Encourage one another here to get into the word. And number three, cut out any pursuits or hobbies that conflict with number one and number two. (laughs) Number three is not me saying you need to become a monk and retreat into the mountains of, I don't know, wherever, the Himalayas, I don't know. And live in a, a grass hut with one pair of clothes and a Bible, and that's it. That's not what I'm saying, okay? Because being, that, that, by the way, that detaches Christianity from life. You're implying that in order to be a good Christian, you have to denounce every good gift of God as evil, there are, God gives to us good gifts, okay, that we can enjoy. Number three is not saying, cut out all those things, okay? When I get home today, there is a strawberry pie in the refrigerator, okay? And I'm going to enjoy that pie. That does not conflict with this. It could, right? It could if you idolize that or become gluttonous or whatever, Okay, it could, but it doesn't have to. What I'm saying is that what what we read about in Hebrews, and that is the weight that easily besets us. We have to cut off things that take us away from the important things. Doesn't mean that you can't have a hobby. Doesn't mean that you can't have something that you enjoy doing as a pursuit. But it does mean that if those things conflict with your pursuit of Christ, then you need to do something differently there. The Word of God is sufficient. We ought to delight in the Word of God. And I'm appealing with you today, don't create a self-induced famine of the Word. Pursue it. Know it. Study it. Love it. It is, these are the words of life. If we don't have this, where are we? Thank you, God, for your grace to us. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your love. Help us as we go that we would implement what we've heard today, that you would use Amos chapter 8 as a salve for our souls, recognizing the seriousness of divine judgment, but also understanding the mercy and grace In the phrase, seek me and live. May there be no one here today who turns away from that call. That everyone would repent and believe on Christ. If there be someone who is not a believer here, that they would turn to you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.